The text for this morning's service can be found in Exodus 3, verses 1 through 17. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said to him, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this is the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever the name you shall call me, from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have, lift, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, some years ago a Christian magazine had an article about excuses. The title of the article was Eight Reasons Why People Don't Watch Sports Anymore. According to this article, some people don't go to football anymore because the seats are too hard and uncomfortable. Others stay away because other spectators are unfriendly, and some of them are obviously hypocrites. And still others stay home because the coach never comes to see them or because the referee makes decisions they cannot agree with. 
Another reason for staying away appears to be that too many games go into overtime, and so they get home late. According to this article in Moody's Monthly, these are just some of the reasons why football stadiums and hockey arenas are often empty places. Now, of course, you don't believe a word of this. Uncomfortable seats and late nights never stopped anybody from watching a hockey game. But the article explains uncomfortable seats and late nights are excuses for not coming to church or going to Bible study. Unfriendly people and hypocrites never keep us away from a football game, but unfriendly people and hypocrites are excuses for not going to church. The point is, if we enjoy a particular sport, nothing can stop us from watching or playing the game. If we don't love the Lord, anything and everything is an excuse to keep us from going to church and doing Bible study. For many of us, a lot of the time, reasons for going here and not doing that are excuses because we know exactly what we want to do and we always find a way of doing that. And we see that in our text for this morning as well. Because God gives Moses a job to do. Moses must speak to Pharaoh on God's behalf. But a fair question, what is wrong with Moses? Why can't Moses go to Pharaoh? In Exodus 3 and 4, Moses dreams up no less than four different excuses. First, who am I? I'm a nobody. Nobody would ever listen to me. Second, I don't know enough. I wouldn't know what to say. Third, my faith is not strong enough, and so nobody would take me seriously. Fourth, I am not the right kind of person for that job. It requires somebody more eloquent than me. And then we notice God takes all these excuses very seriously. God deals with them all one by one, until finally in chapter 4, verse 13, Moses has to tell God his real reason. Moses says, I can't be bothered, Lord. It is too much hassle for me. Please send somebody else instead. But by now the Lord has had quite enough. He says to Moses, enough of your excuses. I refuse to take no for an answer. You must go because I am sending you. I proclaim to you this morning the gospel of your salvation under the following theme. Israel's God meets Moses on the holy mountain to make arrangements for the salvation of Israel. We pay attention to the place where this meeting happens the Lord of Israel who makes the arrangements, the man Moses who receives instructions, the place where this meeting happens. When Moses comes to Mount Horeb in our text, Mount Horeb is called the mountain of God. And we understand later, after the Exodus, God will give Israel the Ten Commandments from off this very mountain. And then this mountain will become special. But already in our text, it is called the mountain of God. But have you ever noticed that mountains have a special place in the Bible? Remember when Abraham had to sacrifice Isaac on an altar, God first brought Abraham to a mountain. We already saw that the Ten Commandments were also given on a mountain. And when Jesus proclaimed the New Testament version of God's law, Jesus also stood on a mountain. Also, when Jesus appointed his apostles and when Jesus was transfigured, and when Jesus, and when Jesus cursed Jerusalem, and when Jesus ascended into heaven, Every time it happened on a mountain. And finally, Daniel tells us, the mountain of the Lord will fill the whole earth. When God comes close to his people, or when God has a special message for his people, the location is often on top of a mountain. And to understand why all, these all this happens on mountains, we go right back to the beginning. For when God created the world, God planted a garden in Eden. And that garden of Eden, that was located in the original holy mountain. Eden was the original mountain of God. After all, a river flowed out of Eden in four directions, and that means, obviously, Eden must have been right on top of a mountain. 
Adam and Eve lived on top of a mountain. They had fellowship with God on top of a mountain. And now because God created paradise on top of a mountain, and because God still wants us to enjoy salvation with him in paradise, again and again, God communicates us with us from the top of a mountain. God calls us to come back to his holy mountain and enjoy his salvation on his holy mountain. Israel prophesies that on a mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And on a mountain the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all our faces. There he will swallow up death forever. In Exodus 2, just before our text, God saw the suffering of his people and heard their groaning. And so what does God do? God speaks to Moses on a mountain. That means God opens the doors of paradise and God calls us to come to him, to come back to paradise. God makes it clear to Moses that Moses must lead the Israelites out of Egypt, away from the slavery of sin, back to paradise. And then verse 2 tells us that the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Boys and girls, can you imagine what that looked like? Here was a bush, a prickly thorn bush, and above that thorn bush was a big flame. The flame must have been six or seven feet high because inside that flame, Moses saw the angel of the Lord. Moses saw this messenger inside this great big flame. Actually, we get the impression that Moses did not see the angel right away. Instead, Moses first sees a flame but no smoke and a bush bush that does not burn up. And when Moses goes over to have a closer look, Moses also discovers the angel. And if we wonder why the angel appears in a thorn bush, there are three reasons. In the first place, angels are heavenly beings, majestic, connected to Almighty God. And even in the desert, there are countless plants that are more beautiful and more impressive than thorn bushes. But the point is that Holy God is about to save the Israelites. And why will God save the Israelites? Are they so glorious? Are they so impressive? Not at all. Instead, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. Just like there's nothing special about thorn bushes, there's nothing special about them either. The Israelites are just as attractive to God as thorn bushes. A second reason why the angel appears in a thorn bush is historical. For when Adam worked in paradise, Adam never scratched his arm on a thorn. Adam never had to pull a thorn out of a bleeding thumb. In God's perfect world, there were no thorns. For after Adam sinned, when God cursed the ground, then Adam had to live with the reality that the pain of thorn bushes. And now God wants to teach Moses that just like thorns came into the world as a result of sin, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt because of their sins. Just like God never designed his perfect creation with thorns, God never intended his children to suffer in Egypt either. God did not design them to be slaves, to be beaten and tormented. Instead, just like thorns, they are the result of our fall into sin. In the same way, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt because of our fall into sin as well. Finally, thorn bushes are tropical desert plants, dry and prickly, with hardly any leaves. If you compare a thorn bush to a fresh green plant with lots of leaves, a thorn bush burns very easily. It is no more than fuel for a fire. It only needs a little spark and the whole bush is gone. Of course, in Exodus 3, Moses sees much more than a little spark. Instead, the whole bush is ablaze, and yet the bush does not burn up. And when we think about this combination of blazing fire and a dry thorn bush, we understand what must happen when holy God lives among sinful people, brothers and sisters. Truly, it is a recipe for disaster. Remember the flood? 
Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? God was far away in heaven, but even from way up there, God's wrath destroyed everything on earth. So you can imagine what must happen if God comes down to earth and lives among his people. Surely they are bound to sin, and then just as surely, God's wrath will destroy them completely. When holy God lives among sinful people, that is like a fire in a thorn bush. Sooner or later, there must be an eruption, and the fire must consume the thorn bush completely. But then we must also hear the gospel, beloved congregation, in spite of the flame. The thorn bush was not consumed. The thorn bush did not burn up. And the reason why the flame did not destroy the thorn bush is Jesus Christ. For when Jesus Christ came down from heaven to pay for his sins, he suffered in many different ways. He was mocked, beaten, spat upon. And just for fun, the soldiers of Pontius Pilate twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on the Lord's head. The soldiers used that crown. Pardon me. The soldiers used that crown of thorns to mock Jesus as a pretend king. But God also wanted to use that crown of thorns because the thorns in Jesus' crown represent the curse of sin. And God wants us to notice these thorns on the head of his son. God wants us to understand that Jesus took the curse of sin upon himself. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus endured the agony of hell because of those thorns. Just like that thorn bush in the days of Moses was fuel for the fire, Jesus Christ became sin. Jesus Christ became fuel for the fire of his father's wrath. The thorn bush in Exodus 3 was not consumed, and the people of God in the Old Testament were not consumed either, because Jesus Christ was willing to wear our crown of thorns, and because he took upon himself the curse of our sin, and because in our place he became fuel for the burning fire of God's wrath. And so we understand the sign of the burning bush did not burn up is all about Jesus Christ. The fire that bush burned so fiercely represents the holiness of God, the wrath of God against sin, while the burning bush represents God's people. And then we go to any chapter of the Old Testament and we can criticize the Israelites. Even more importantly, we can look around in the church and we can criticize each other because there is so much that disappoints us. Sometimes we are even inclined to give up. What's the use? We try to reach certain people. We try to make them understand. We encourage them to join in and change their lifestyle. But what's the use? Nothing changes. And then we want to forget them. We want to turn over a new page. We want to start again with something fresh. We want to focus our attention on other people who will listen, who will grow, who want to make progress. That is much more rewarding. It seems much more worthwhile. Think about this, brothers and sisters. In this country, so many people attend one church for a while. They put their heart and soul into their congregation, but they get discouraged until they start again in a new church home. If you were God, or if I was God, if we were that flame of fire, we would have set fire to that bush ages ago. We have found a different bush that was more responsive. But the thorn bush in our text did not burn up, and that makes us stop and realize that God does not become discouraged with his congregation. God will never be fed up with his church and destroy it and start a new one. Instead, God remains faithful always. From the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Moses and David and Paul, through 20 centuries of New Testament church history, God continues to dwell in his church and preserve it. God will be patient with us until the end. That is the awesome promise of the burning bush. So let us not be discouraged and let us not lose heart. And now in our second point, we'll pay attention to the Lord of Israel who makes the arrangements for the salvation of his people. 
When God commands Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses is not too keen. And who can blame Moses? Moses is already 80 years old. And more importantly, remember when Moses tried to help two fighting Israelites make peace? Moses failed miserably. Obviously, Moses is not a leader, and he realizes this himself. That's why Moses says, not me, Lord, please. In verse 13, Moses imagines what might happen if he would go to the Israelites, if he would tell them that God has given him the job of leading them out of Egypt. Moses knows that he is not a natural leader, and he is convinced that they will never believe him. Instead, they will, be, they will bombard him with questions. They will request proof. They will demand a guarantee that Moses knows what he is doing, and Moses wants to be prepared. Moses wants God to give him something that will make the Israelites accept him, so that they say, okay, Moses, this makes sense. What you say is obviously true, and so we will follow you. Moses wants something from God that will bring about that kind of reaction. But God tells Moses, I am who I am. God tells Moses, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me, has sent me to you. This name of God, I am who I am, this name is God's covenant name, Yahweh. And to understand what this name means, imagine a two-year-old boy, Fred. And when you see Fred do something you don't understand, you ask his mom, why does Fred do that? She might say, Fred learned it from his father. Or she might say, Fred does that whenever he wants a candy. Mom understands exactly why Fred does all these things. But sometimes mom does not understand. And then she says, there is no logical explanation, no reason why. Instead, that's just Fred. That's who he is. The reason why Fred does that cannot, can, can be found only in himself, in his character. That's who Fred is. And that is precisely the issue in Exodus 3, brothers and sisters. God commands Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses says, God, that does not make sense. Nobody's going to buy that. Please, God, be reasonable. Explain yourself. Break it down for us in such a way that we can accept it. But God says, there's no reason. There is no explanation. I am who I am. This is who I am. And this is the way I want to do it. And that's all there is to it. When I chose Abraham to be my child, why did I do that? That's just because of who I am. And when I choose you, Moses, to lead my people out of Egypt, that's because of who I am because I chose you, and there is absolutely no other reason. And this is always the logic of God. God never says, you did that, and therefore I responded like that. God never says, this happened, and that happened, and therefore I must do that. Whenever God does anything, the reason why is never found in the actions of any creature. The reason why God does this or that is never because somebody else did this, or because that happened. Instead, God Instead, says God to Moses, I am who I am. Nothing influences me, nothing drives me, nothing causes me to do what I do. Instead, I do everything because it suits me. I am who I am. Of course, we can have long and interesting debates on this subject. We can ask why President Bush was reelected. We can ask why Hitler was allowed to kill six million Jews or why God sends people to hell and why there are many other secondary reasons that are important. The ultimate reason for everything that happens is because God is who he is. Because that's the way God wants it. And that might sound harsh, brothers and sisters. It might sound as if God is uncaring and unfeeling, but God says, I am who I am. And that means God is not interested in proving that he is nice or reasonable. 
God is not concerned about whether or not he meets your standard. Instead, God sets every standard. God is every standard. And when God does anything that we don't understand, which is most of the time, the only correct response is, I guess that's who God is. That's what God means when he says, I am who I am. We cannot explain why God does what he does. We cannot change him. We cannot influence him. We cannot correct him. And that's why when Moses comes to Egypt, when Moses says, this is what the Lord says, then there is only one thing that the Israelites can say, and that is, if that's what God says, we must accept that. If that's what God commands, we must do that. We don't understand why, because the only reason is God. He wants it this way because of who he is. I am who I am is God's covenant name. From these words, I am who I am, comes the name Yahweh. God gives this name to the Israelites, his covenant people. And this is very important because when God says, I am who I am, that means God does not answer to anyone. God is free to do what he wants. But I am who I am, that also means once God has spoken, once God has promised something, God will never undo his promise. God will never change his mind. Once God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be his children, once God promised to bring the Israelites to Canaan, and now there is nothing that can influence God, nothing that can sway God to change his mind. God is who God is, and nobody can change him. One of the psalms that we often sing at baptism is Psalm 105, stanza 4. Firm stands his words to Abraham spoken, his oath to Isaac never broken. I am who I am. I do not change. And especially when we fall into sin, especially when we don't give God his rightful place in our lives, especially then the fact that God does not change means everything to us because we are unfaithful. And will God then still be faithful? We are selfish. We are greedy. We do so many things that offend God. And can God still then love us in spite of all these sins? Will God accept us if we turn to him? Will he take us back if we repent? In Exodus 3, God says, I am who I am. And that means I do not change. Even when you sin, I do not change. I choose you to belong to me, and so you will always belong to me. And nothing that you do will ever change that. I am who I am, says the Lord. He promised Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan to the children of Israel. And so God says to Moses, go to Egypt. Because God will certainly do what he promised. But God will do it the way that pleases him. We cannot understand him. We cannot change him. But instead, we must simply obey him. And we will see that in our third point. Moses, who receives instruction. If God wants to lead Israel out of Egypt, and if God wants to show his glory first, why does God show his glory in Midian to Moses? Why doesn't God come to Goshen instead so that all the Israelites can see his glory? The most basic reason is obviously found in God's name. I am who I am. That means there is no reason. Instead, that's the way God is. That's how God wants to do things. So that nothing and nobody will change his mind. But there's also another reason. In Genesis, the church was never more than a single family. The church was the family of Abraham, later the family of Isaac, and later the family of Jacob. But in Exodus, God's church has become a great big nation. And then God brings Moses to Midian, which is far away from the rest of the church. God reveals himself to Moses at Mount Sinai, which is far away from the rest of the church. 
And there, God gives Moses instructions. And from now on, God will always communicate with his people via a mediator. God will speak to Moses, to Joshua, to Samuel, and to Jeremiah. And those men must speak for God to his church. From now on, everybody on earth, even Pharaoh, has to listen to the word of that man, Moses. And that is also the way of the church today. You haven't seen God's glory, and nor have I for that matter. Instead of God showing you his glory so that you can see him with your own eyes, God wants to give you faith through the works of simple and sinful men. God wants to use parents and teachers and office bearers. God wants to communicate the truth of scripture through these people. That's why Moses has gone to Midian, and that's why Moses has to bring his sheep to Mount Horeb. God wants Moses to go far away from the rest of the Israelites. God reveals himself to Moses alone because God wants to communicate to Israel through Moses. And from now on, this is the way it will always be. And so, beloved congregation, when our text refers to Mount Horeb as the mountain of God, our minds are drawn back to paradise, the original mountain of God. Remember that on that mountain, everything was perfect and everybody was happy. When God meets Moses on the mountain of God, the point is that the doors of paradise are opened and God wants us all to enter paradise and receive his salvation. In our second point, we saw that God never explains his actions and God never answers to anyone either. God doesn't need us to say, it's okay because we understand what God is doing. Instead, when somebody who we know does something and we don't understand, and we say, that's just his character, that's just who he is. In the same way, God says, I am who I am, and I do whatever I want. I am who I am. Nobody and nothing can change me. But also, when God speaks, when God promises, God always keeps his promises. The promises that, make, that God made to Abraham, the promises that God made to you and me at baptism, God will never break any of these promises because I am who I am. God does not change. In the third place, we saw that God brought Moses away from the Israelites in Egypt. And God brought Moses all the way to Mount Horeb because Moses alone was allowed to see the glory of God. From now on, God will only speak to his people through Moses, through Isaiah, through Peter, and through Paul, so that you and me cannot see the glory of God. Instead, we have to believe the words that were written, that were spoken and written by normal sinful people. If we listen to ordinary and sinful men like parents and teachers and office bearers, and if we listen especially to the word that is written in the Bible, God will certainly use those people and their words to nourish and refresh our souls. Because God promised, and he always keeps his promises. Amen.